that's very good, uh, Pete. Good to have you among us. Um, you are uh, you're not just one of our contacts in the UK. We have a, a, a good network of contacts in different different places. But you're a colleague. You're actually forty percent employed with us. Yes, that? that's right. So I'm uh, I'm employed from the neck downwards or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> very good. So, so you're part of our staff. You, we, uh, we, we uh, bring you in for for teaching on quite a few of our courses, um, and uh, you teach when we bring our students over for the study tour, which we don't have this year. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, this, is, this is the first time this group uh, meets you in this class. Although some of them have heard you at Veritas conferences right. or or. Um, or online, um, and uh, you're, you're a philosopher by education. Yeah, uh, you have many different interests, and maybe, maybe maybe you can tell us just a little bit about yourself before we we uh, focus on this uh, uh, on the, the the latest book or the published book. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a I would describe myself as a as a Christian philosopher, um, so not just a philosopher who happens to be a Christian, but a, a Christian philosopher. Um, and uh, I have a particular interest in uh, engaging uh, with uh, atheist, um, naturalistic thinking about the world, and uh, that's been a focus of of my writing and and speaking and so on. Um, but also, um, you know, as a Christian. I don't just believe in a a generic sort of God, uh, but in a particular God revealed in a very particular way through Jesus. So I, I have a particular interest in the historical Jesus, and that's kind of the other lo locus of my uh, research and publishing has been stuff on the historical Jesus and the, the historicity of the, the Gospels and so on. Um, so those are sort of my two main areas. I, I, I came into philosophy, I sort of stumbled into it at, at university, uh, I hadn't uh, studied it formally before and I went off to university to do a, a joint degree in English literature and music and had to take philosophy as my, my third humanities courses for my first year and I ended up um, graduating with a single honours degree in philosophy and taking it on as far as I could and spent a few years as a student worker for a, a church in the middle of England somewhere and um, worked for a Christian educational charity for a while um, through uh, through which I got uh, contact with the folks uh, in uh, Norway there at Gimla Collin uh, who are now involved in um, Damaris Norga. So I was involved in Damaris UK um, which unfortunately um, collapsed a, a couple of years ago now. Um, but through that Damaris contact um, I started doing bits of teaching on the study tour and so on for, for Gimla Collin and then gradually uh, inveigled my way onto onto the staff. Uh, <laughs> mm. That's uh, that's excellent, Pete. So so Pete is also part of the history of Damaris Norway, right? Because he was linked to the Damaris UK project, which is yeah. called an educational trust organization. Uh, and we we um, we took this kind of this brand over to Norway and developed it in in our our ways. And we still have we still have kept the name Damaris um, and, and um, so which, if, which if any of you are wondering comes from Acts chapter 17 it's the name of one of the Greek 
ladies who became a Christian after Paul uh, gave his famous speech in Athens at the Areopagus before the philosophers in Athens. Mm. Yeah, so that's a, uh, you know, Acts 17 is a very central text for our thinking about communication and apologetics mm. in, uh, in, in our course in communication worldview. So that's yeah. the Maris uh, name, as, as, uh, as you probably have mentioned some couple of times already. So, so, um, um, uh, Pete, Pete is, is uh, he's, he's writing on different topics, as he said, he's, he's, he's published 10, 15 books, Pete? Yeah, it depends how you count them, um, solo-authored yeah. or co-authored and, and so on. Uh, yeah. th this is, no, over here, this is my most recent one, just came out recently, this is a collection of um, papers that were originally appeared in um, the College Journal, in Theophilus uh, Journal. Um, and I, I've got some contracts to publish a series of, of um, books that are collected essays on different themes. And mm. uh, this one is on the theme of, of sort of how to do apologetics um, mm. through a, a, uh, an understanding of um, spirituality, a sort of holistic approach to apologetics that I call apologetics in 3D. So yep. that's my, my latest offering. Um, mm. But you can uh, delve into... Um, all sorts of uh, those offerings and lots of free stuff and um, podcasts and YouTube channel I have and so on uh, through my website at uh, peterswilliams.com uh, should you be interested mm. to to delve into that and you can even find some of my amateur compositions uh, through that as well so, you, mean, you mean music composition yeah yeah right? <laughs> so I kept I kept the interest in music after leaving university so mm. that's very good that's very good so he has a uh, 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 wide, wide interests. Uh, now, uh, the the focus of our teaching today is his book on uh, is as a response book to Richard Dawkins' uh, Outgrowing God. Mm. You know the uh, the um, one of the most famous books by Richard Dawkins, the new the new atheist, is the God Delusion in, from around two thousand and five. I, I would think around that yeah. time. And now uh, he hasn't written very much since that book. It's, that book has come under a lot of criticism, both by, from, from atheists and uh, philosophers and by Pete and, mm. and many people. Uh, and it's interesting that what he's now doing is actually, he's not going deeper philosophically. He's making the same bad arguments as was in The, the God Delusion, They're available for youth, mm. right? Which is quite interesting the way he's moving, and he's also seeing the importance of of reaching youth with his ideas. Uh, so the book is called Outgrowing God, um, and it's it's uh, it's quite a bit of the same kind of book as the God Delusion, but aimed for a different age age group, mm -hmm. uh, and that was the um, um, that was the starting point for Pitt's book which is also called Outgrowing God, but with a question mark, right? The question mark is important, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we have that in our curriculum, which we, we mean uh, 100 pages for that book is, is curriculum. Um, and it's, it is uh, apologetics in practice. It's responding on specific, uh, specific questions and challenges. And it's also quite interesting because uh, because of the way the book is written, it's not written written as the kind of the classical philosophical discussion as you normally do. 
but you've been writing it with, with a special um, genre, right? Right, so it's, it's actually a literal discussion. It's written in the form of a dialogue. Uh, mm -hmm. So I said it in a, in a student book group. Um, and then you have uh, different characters in that book group who represent different positions. Uh, and, and there's a long history of in philosophy, right back to the ancient Greek writers like Plato particularly, is famous for writing material in the form of dialogue between characters who represent different positions. So it's a, it's a somewhat artificial kind of discussion, um, but it does allow you to sort of work in a, an, an element of character and sort of um, story uh, into it to make it a little bit more interesting and accessible. Uh, and you have these different characters representing different positions, so you get a sort of rounded view of, say, what different people in, in different philosophical positions would make of the material that they're discussing. Mm. So, so it's it, it's quite interesting that that way of of doing philosophy has a has a history as well, right, Pete? Absolutely. So not just yeah. writing philosophy as a kind of a textbook thinking. Mm. It has a background, doesn't it? Mm. Some some famous philosophers did that. Yeah, as I say, Pl Plato is probably the most uh, famous, but uh, a number of other philosophers have done that. Even even in modern day times, there's a, an American. Christian Catholic philosopher called um, Peter Kreeft or Peter Kreft, uh, okay. who is quite famous for writing uh, many books in in dialogue form, um, making philosophy accessible to um, novice or younger uh, audiences through through doing that. Uh, publishes quite a few books in dialogue form with IVP. Um, he's very mm -hmm. readable, so yeah, check out Peter Kreeft on on uh, Amazon or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 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 this this format is uh, does have a tradition, and it makes it a lot easier. And it shows also that philosophy is a is is something that not not just to be done by philosophers, but by by us by thinking people. Like yeah, I, I would I I would say I think basically if you think about anything, you can't avoid being a philosopher. You can just you can either be a a, a good philosopher or a bad philosopher. But as soon as you start thinking about things, you're you're yeah. you're, you're doing philosophy at, so, at some level, um, particularly when you address any of the the sort of big, important, uh, fundamental questions of life, the universe, and everything. Uh, and all you can do is try and, and do that thinking as well as you can, and in in a informed and disciplined way as you can. So, um, I I I would um, if we want a sort of quick, off the cuff definition of what it is to do philosophy, I'd, I'd say something like it, it's trying to pursue true answers to significant questions by thinking wisely. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. We all need to think wisely, whatever mm. level we're at, we're at right? Right. There's a question in, in, the, in the chat here to, to everyone. Uh, is it recommended to read Outgrown God by Dawkins before your response book? Ah well, uh, you 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 could, um, but you wouldn't need to in order to follow my book. So, the the characters in my book uh, go through the topics uh, in Dawkins' book and quote uh, from him, um, and so it gives you all the context that you 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 would need. Um, I don't address absolutely everything uh, that's in that Dawkins book, uh, although I do bring a, a bigger context to it, from quoting some of his other writings a little bit when when that's relevant. 
um, but you certainly don't need to have read the, the the book by Dawkins in order to to follow what's going on in in my response. So I'll, I'll give you what his arguments are, uh, and then have um, the characters discussing uh, what they make of it. Well, marvelous. Um, so I'm sure you've probably heard of uh, Dawkins. We've been chatting about him a little bit uh, already. Um, He's probably the most famous influential atheist in the world today, I would say. Um, I wouldn't say he's the most formidable atheist in the world today in terms of the quality of his uh, argumentation, but he is perhaps the most influential uh, and famous atheist in the world. Um, he's a zoologist by background, um, an evolutionary um, biologist, he is an emeritus uh, fellow at New College in Oxford, uh, so he comes well credentialed within the scientific field. Uh, indeed, he acted as uh, Oxford University's first ever professor for the public understanding of science um, from 1995 to 2008. That was a sort of endowed uh, position um, that he was set up with there through a, a rich donor. He first came to prominence in the uh, mid-1980s uh, through a string of popular science books, uh, starting with uh, The Blind Watchmaker in 1986, where he describes the process of evolution as this blind watchmaker rather than as a the, the sort of sighted watchmaker that um, theists like uh, William Paley in his famous design argument for God uh, would sort of portray God as. Uh, or his book Climbing Mount Improbable in 1996. Uh, they're, they're two particularly significant books of, of Dawkins. Um, but as his sort of um, popular writing career went on, his uh, atheism started coming more and more to the fore. And um, after the 9-11 uh, attacks in America in 2001, there was a sort of popular... Uh, wave of anti-theistic writing that started off in the States uh, with folks like um, Sam Harris and um, Dawkins in uh, 2006 published The, the God Delusion and a second edition in 2016 and, and The God Delusion has sold over 3 million copies uh, and it was in 2019 that he published uh, Outgrowing God uh, which has been uh, called um, a sort of junior version uh, of the of the God delusion, as uh, the, the Guardian review uh, put it. So here's his book, Outgrowing God, a, Be a beginner's guide. So he's kind of taking the ideas uh, of the kind that he conveyed in the the God delusion and 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 aiming it at a sort of um, younger sort of um, student kind of audience. Uh, and my response, uh, Outgrowing God with the Question Mark, a, a beginner's guide to Richard Dawkins and the God Debate, um, then came out at uh, the end of uh, last year. As I say, it's written in the form of dialogue uh, between members in a, a student book club um, to encourage critical thinking about Dawkins' arguments, um, particularly looking at his arguments about God and Jesus uh, and the Bible. Uh, it's written in this dialogue form, so you have the, these characters who represent different positions. Um, there's the convener of the student book club, who's a, a professor at the university, who's kind of um, there just to uh, drop information into the conversation and keep it on track, but she's uh, 
representing uh, philosophy as a tradition really um, so I've called her Professor Sophie Minerva um, catching uh, the English version of, uh, of Sophia which is um, Greek for wisdom um, as in philosophy philo Sophia love of wisdom and uh, the Roman goddess of wisdom was Minerva uh, so she's sort of representing uh, lady philosophy um, as um, writers uh, like Boethius would, would use uh, in um, his book The Constellation of Philosophy for example and then we have Hiromi who's an uh, international student from Japan uh, who's studying music and philosophy um, Thomas who's an undergraduate studying um, classics, classical antiquity uh, and he's uh, the character who's kind of been influenced by the new atheist movement and by reading Dawkins and describes himself as a sceptic and a neo-atheist uh, and then we have Douglas, who's a post-grad philosophy student who would describe himself as a, a classical atheist. Uh, so he's the kind of atheist who thinks that Richard Dawkins is the kind of atheist who gives atheism a bad name, but thinks there are much more sensible ways to be an atheist than, than, than how Dawkins does it. And then we have uh, Astrid, uh, whose uh, name I, I read means uh, godly strength. Uh, who is an international postgrad student from Norway um, and uh, a graduate of the Communication and Worldviews course at NLA University. Haha. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I plug the uh, the Worldview and Communication course uh, through this book and she's now abroad um, studying theology as it happens. So she's our Christian character. Uh, and uh, there's a little bit of soap opera around the, the, the characters and uh, various things going on and their relationships. Um, in there as well just to make the, the book a bit more interesting and the characters a bit more real. Uh, let me just very briefly take you through the, the contents here which pretty much follows the, the, the contents of Dawkins's book but I do reverse a couple of the chapters at one stage for a reason that I'll point out. Uh, we start, uh, I call them meetings rather than chapters because they're meetings of the book club, uh, we start out by, by getting our, our terms right, so our understanding what we mean by atheism and agnosticism and polytheism and theism and so on, and talking a little bit about the, the doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity. Uh, the second meeting we look at the historical reliability of the New Testaments, particularly the, the Gospels and the, the issue of the resurrection of Jesus. Then we move on to the, the Old Testament, reliability of the Old Testament histories look at the issue of uh, meta-ethics, of the nature of ethics, and look at the moral argument for God, which we'll look at in part two of our sessions today. And then we look at uh, the issue of normative ethics, about different systems uh, that try to help you make good ethical choices. Look at the, uh, the ethical character of the biblical God in the sixth meeting. Uh, and this is why I've reversed uh, an order because in, in, in the order that Dawkins does things in, in his book uh, he introduces uh, looking at the ethical character of the biblical God which he wants to heavily critique before he talks about the the issue of the nature of morality and its relationship with God uh, and I, I, I think he's pulling a bit of a fast one uh, intentionally or not uh, by doing that uh, so I reverse that order to put it into a more sensible uh, more logical order of, of topic it seems to me to look at the nature of morality and its relationship with God before looking at the issue of the the ethical character of God uh, revealed in the Bible. In the seventh meeting we look at uh, issues around um, evolution and the biological design argument 
Um, eight, we look at uh, evolutionary explanations of um, religiosity and ethical sort of feelings or beliefs on people's part. In the ninth meeting, uh, issues about cosmology in science, um, looking at um, the Kalam version of the cosmological argument and mainly at the fine-tuning version of the design argument before a brief wrap-up uh, in the, the final meeting where everyone kind of says uh, what they've thought of the discussion and, and whether they've moved positions or not uh, as they've, they've discussed these issues. As I say, you can find out a lot more uh, about this and other writings on my website at peterswilliams.com. And each book, including this one, has a its own resource page where you'll find um, free additional resources like podcasts and YouTube um, videos to watch. And, and um, uh, it, I've even got a Hiromi's playlist of, of music from uh, musical artists mentioned in Outgrowing God there. So... Let me move on to making a, a kind of key observation about Dawkins's general approach in this book. Um, he gave an interview uh, when promoting the book uh, in which he said that he wants to, to rid the world of anything that's not evidence-based where factual knowledge is concerned. Uh, things which are based on authority rather than on evidence, he says. Well... That's interesting in light of the fact that Dawkins himself in the book repeatedly, repeatedly makes unevidenced assertions that he clearly expects his readers to, to just take on faith, to believe on his authority, as it were. And uh, unfortunately, many of the assertions that Dawkins makes without giving you the, the evidence... Uh, are factually wrong, just factually wrong. Um, and so for a book that is concerned with, with telling young people to kind of question their faith traditions by asking for evidence, he then promotes them doing this through a book that gives them lots of assertions that they're meant to take on faith, um, and many of which are actually, when you look into them, factually wrong, which is quite ironic, really. Uh, so, for example, he asserts that biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously as history. He asserts that various Old Testament uh, stories uh, make an extraordinary claim that he says requires extraordinary evidence for you to be able to believe it. He asserts that there's an absence of extra-biblical evidence, evidence from outside of the Bible, for the historical truth of certain Old Testament stories, for example. And he asserts that the existence of extra-biblical evidence uh, against the truth of certain Old Testament stories. And that's a whole lot of assertion for a book that's supposed to encourage young people to ask for evidence. Um, and he really he just asserts these things. That, that There isn't even a bibliography in the book. There certainly aren't any footnotes. Well... Um, Here's a smattering of books by scholars who do take the Old Testament seriously as history. And of course, not all scholars do, but some do. Uh, so simply asserting that, that biblical scholars don't take the Old Testament seriously as history is just factually wrong. And it is a, a false generalisation uh, to put a label on the kind of logical fallacy 
that's uh, being used there, a false generalization. Then we have this assertion that um, extraordinary claims, and particularly you'd be talking about miracle claims in the Old Testament, require extraordinary evidence. But this is just a sort of reheated version of um, David Hume's notorious argument against believing in miracles, which are uh, much discussed and very um, controversial within uh, philosophy of religion. Uh, indeed, Dawkins is sort of borrowing from David Hume via uh, the science populariser Carl Sagan, um, whose argument sort of boils down to um, what one philosopher called um, Timothy McGrew calls uh, the argumentum sagani, um, which goes something like this. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, this, this assertion that, that Dawkins uses. Uh, but two, the claim that a miracle has occurred is extraordinary, and therefore three, any evidence supporting that miracle claim ought to be extraordinary as well. Okay, uh, But four, I, I'm not sure what I mean by extraordinary. You know, what, 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 what does that actually mean in, in hard terms? But five, but whatever you come up with as evidence uh, is not going to work, it's not going to meet my standard. My, my very vague, undefined standard, uh, and therefore no one is justified in believing any miracle claim. Um, so this whole sort of um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence uh, assertion sort of, sort of founders on, on um, vagueness about what you mean. And if you start firming up what you mean, uh, what standards of evidence you want to mean, well then you have to deal with the issue of, well, is there such evidence that meets those standards? And you have to actually get into the details rather than just dismissing miracle claims with this sort of slogan. Uh, and indeed, as I say, this goes back to David Hume's notorious arguments, which, as William Lane Craig here says, uh, the fallaciousness, the falseness of Hume's reasonings on miracles has been recognised by the majority of philosophers writing on the subject today. And that's not just Christian philosophers, um, that's the majority of philosophers. Um, so I've put here the, the front cover of um, a book by an agnostic philosopher of religion called John Ehrman. Um, the book's called Hume's Abject Failure, The Argument Against Miracles. And I've got a whole chapter uh, about um, this um, Hume and miracles and so on in my book, uh, Getting at Jesus, if this is a, a issue of particular interest to you. Uh, thirdly, we've got this uh, this assertion from Dawkins that there's an, an, you know, an absence of extra biblical evidence, which, you know, why do you need extra biblical evidence anyway? Uh, the Bible is evidence in and of itself. Um, but there's this absence of extra biblical evidence for the historical truth of certain Old Testament stories. Um, okay, well, this is an argument from silence, as the philosopher would say. Um, an argument from silence is when you, you make this sort of undisciplined shift, this shift from, from the absence of evidence for or against some proposition, some truth claim, and you then shift from that to a claim about the truth or falsity of that truth claim. You make a shift from the absence of evidence to the truth or falsity of that claim. Um, and the, the one just doesn't follow from the other. Uh, as atheist Victor Stenger here, uh, who was one of the new atheists, warns, uh, that an absence of evidence can only be used as an evidence 
of absence and evidence against a truth claim when the evidence should be there and it's not uh, and you have to look and define very carefully whether or not you're you're talking about a situation where you know if a claim were true there should be some evidence for it that you have and you don't and in that case yeah that absence of evidence is a reason not to believe the truth claim but but only in such a situation when we're talking about history and historical claims we, we just have a very limited access to the past uh, we have an access to the past through the the currently known chain of its surviving effects and that's pretty much random um, I mean only 35 out of 142 books of Roman history written by um, Livy have survived um, we've got about 20 manuscripts the oldest of which dates from the fourth century and uh, Livy was writing in the, the first uh, century we've only got four and a half of Tacitus's 14 books of Roman history that have survived in, in two manuscripts from the 9th and 11th centuries um, so we're kind of grateful for what surviving historical evidence for things in the past we have um, and it's you know it's kind of beside the point to say oh well we haven't got any extra taciturn evidence for event X and therefore that's evidence that um, you know Tacitus must have made it up or whatever you know you wouldn't make that argument against Tacitus or why make it uh, against uh, historical books in the Old Testament so we have this argument from silence and finally Dawkins does assert that there is actually you know kind of positive evidence from outside the Bible against certain historical truth claims uh, in various Old Testament stories and this, unfortunately, is simply a matter of ignorance on Dawkins' part. So let me give you some examples. Um, here's a, Dawkins asserts that um, the stories about Abraham having camels in the Old Testament is a historical anachronism, is something that, that's out of historical place, um, because he claims that the camel was not domesticated until many centuries after Abraham is supposed to have died. So Abraham you know couldn't have had camels like the Old Testament says um, well, Dawkins is just wrong about this um, here's a quote from the Egyptologist uh, Dr K A Kitchen uh, in his book The Ancient Orient and Old Testament uh, he says it's often asserted that the mention of camels and of their use is an anachronism in Genesis uh, this charge is simply not true as there is both written and archaeological evidence for knowledge and use of this animal in the early second millennium BC and even earlier um, and I give various references uh, and more detail on that evidence uh, in, the, in the relevant chapter of the book or this is Dawkins on King David he says King David made no impact either on archaeology or on written history outside of the Bible see there's that that you know you need evidence from outside of the Bible claim again but no impact on archaeology well this is again ignorance Dawkins obviously hasn't heard about the the publications of fragment from an old uh, Aramaic stela um, inscribed stone from Tel Dan in these were published in 1993 and 1995 
um, which brought to light the first recognised non-biblical, extra-biblical mention of the 10th century King David uh, in a text that reflected events of the year 841 and would have uh, been set up at no great interval after that date. Uh, so it's not all that uh, long after the 10th century BC, uh, 841 BC. Uh, and this Stele uh, famously mentions the House of David. Um, so Eric Klein, who's a professor of classics and anthropology and history at George Washington University, uh, explains that the, the finding of this inscription brought an end to the debate about the historicity of David uh, and settled the question of whether David was an actual historical person, uh, i.e. by saying yes, yes he was. So as Thomas uh, says at one stage in the book, uh, I noted over a dozen false statements in Outgrowing God on points like the supposed lack of archaeological evidence for the existence of King David or camels supposedly being an anachronism in the Old Testament. Uh, Dawkins he gets his facts wrong about Josephus's references to Jesus and about the design of the human eye. Um, you know, and okay, on issues like camels in the Old Testament, you might say oh, Dawkins is writing outside of his area of, of expertise, although he should have done some research. But when he's talking about the design of the human eye, um, his information is just out of date. He hasn't kept up on the research and he makes mistakes in his description of that design uh, when he's criticising it and so on. Uh, outgrowing God is, is basically riddled with misinformation. Uh, and the trouble with this misinformation is that because Dawkins doesn't give references or bibliography or, or quote sources hardly at all, uh, he just conveys things on his kind of personal authority as you know, a emeritus professor at Oxford University. Of course, people who don't know any better are going to take what he says generally seriously and, and assume that he at least knows what he's talking about um, and take stuff on on kind of his authority. And it's just so ironic that a book that, that sort of claims to be trying to get uh, religious readers to think more critically and to question what they've been told by their religious traditions um, operates by um, asserting things at the audience um, and relying upon the audience not questioning the expertise uh, of Dawkins in conveying that information, uh, which if they did, and bothered doing a little research, it wouldn't take too much to find out that Dawkins often doesn't know what he's talking about. So I will stop there and we'll come back for for questions and discussion recording stopped thank you very much Pete uh, this was an introduction to the book and to some of the kind of um, systematic problems with the whole book um, and it, it is quite interesting that we, we do see some people coming to Christian faith <laughs> through Richard Dawkins yeah yeah I, 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 I've got a friend who, who came to faith through Richard Dawkins 
Indeed, yeah. he he um, he was influenced. He was a university student studying drama. He was influenced by the New Atheists. He he read Dawkins, uh, and when Dawkins said, you know, you've you've got to ask what's the evidence and pursue the truth, th this really struck a chord with him. Um, but he actually decided to do it, and started uh, you know watching um, YouTube debates between New Atheists and folks like William Lane Craig, and got increasingly frustrated with Richard Dawkins for continually refusing people's calls or attempts to set up a debate between Dawkins and William Lane Craig um, and thought that Dawkins gave all sorts of poor excuses for, for, for not doing this um, and in, even at, at one public event that um, my friend attended he sort of challenged Dawkins on this point and was so kind of frustrated with his answer that he he made a little YouTube video <laughs> about it um, and then in uh, back in 2011, I think it was 2011 or 2013, um, Craig did a, a tour, a speaking tour of the of the UK. Uh, and, and, and you you actually was involved in that tour. What I was involved you? in that tour, so I, I I drove Bill around for that tour, and I also I partnered with him at a debate at the uh, the Cambridge Union, mm. uh, where uh, we you have a two people versus two people uh, debate. Uh, so I was. Uh, Privileged to be uh, paired with Bill Craig for for a debate at the Cambridge Union at uh, that instance, but my my friend also came on this tour doing a lot of media stuff because he was uh, media savvy uh, as an agnostic who was frustrated with Dawkins not sort of um, really engaging seriously with these issues, and by the end of that tour, um, my friend had become a Christian. So, <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yes, that's 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 very interesting. When when people discover the lack lack of basis or, or uh, the inconsistencies, they there's something pulled away from the from these these kind of very very bold claims. Yeah, uh, yeah. So mm -hmm. kind of you can. I mean, Dawkins is influential, but he's superficial. And if you can get people to notice that he's superficial. Mm -hmm. Once they notice that, you know, that, that can have very interesting results. Um, and I think it's a good sort of lesson in in how often, you know, we can perhaps be sort of, to a certain extent, sort of frightened or, or fearful of these sort of big public figures who've got a big reputation, um, big academic credentials and so on. And like, oh, you know, should I, should I read the, you know, Dawkins's book? It might, you know, make me doubt my faith or whatever. Um, well, yeah, if you read it in a superficial way and you don't actually question it and you don't take seriously sort of a little bit of background knowledge in critical thinking or, or bother to check what they're saying. But I think if if you have a little um, a little knowledge of, of critical thinking and fallacies and so on, you start noticing that they repeatedly, Dawkins certainly repeatedly, makes fallacious arguments or when you mm -hmm. check what he's saying you know um about you know archaeology king david uh, it's like this stuff was published in the 90s um <laughs> yeah it's 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 not um uh, someone says somewhere in the bible not out done in a corner somewhere um <laughs> so you can you can soon find um that often they're just sort of spouting off and and relying on on people just sort of taking them at their word rather than, than, than questioning things.
Yeah. Which, as so, I say, is so well, ironic in a, in a book that's all about you know you need to question your faith. Well, yeah, good, fine. Question your question your faith because then, you know, you'll understand it better and so on. That's uh, you know a good thing. Question things. You you, you question things. You get answers. Um, but question the atheists as well. <laughs> question yeah, so, question all of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think what one of the central elements of our course is. Is actually learning critical thinking, and we need to apply that both on mm. attacks on the Christian faith, right? <clears throat> but also on our own faith. Yeah. And when we listen to Christian apologists or something, we we need to reflect critically, right? Yeah. So, so that's that's what I think is <clears throat> is so important with the book. It's it's not just a response and a, a pushback on Dawkins, mm. but it's an invitation to think what's he actually saying. What is the documentation? Uh, how is his argument? Which I think yeah. is really, really very important for us. Yeah. Uh, in not least in the, the, this age of, of um, social media, where we very quickly just jump into our groups, right, our tribes, yeah. and attack and uh, and complain about the others, and and we don't do the the job of of really thinking for ourselves. So so I think it's very mm -hmm. critical. Yeah, I mean that the dialogue between. I mean, it's an idealized situation, but I am at least trying to kind of model how a group of people with very different worldview perspectives can be friendly towards one another, uh, can challenge one another's thinking, um, but in a friendly manner, mm. um, not in a, 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 a sort of um, angry manner. Uh, you can be adversarial, yeah. adversarial in your thinking without being adversaries. You can you can disagree agreeably uh, with other people. Um, mm. That's very important in in our current sort of cultural climate, as you say. Thank you very much. Yeah, the the uh, the rhetorical significance of footnotes and bibliographies. Uh, who, who'd have thought it? But in a world where people can just you know make assertions about you know don't get vaccinated against coronavirus because the government are trying to put tracking systems into you via little microchips or whatever nonsense you can find on YouTube you know people assert things and people will believe things when things are confidently asserted um, and so it's it's no good coming back at that and just confidently asserting your position Mm -hmm. uh, you actually have to say, well, you know, h here is the evidence, and you you can go and look at that evidence. Uh, here is a picture of it. Um, here is here is a quote from a secular source that it, that agrees. You know, this isn't just like Christian scholarship, uh, 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 and so on. So they, those kind of thinking rhetorically about you know what what giving sources, but also what sources you you give, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so on, is actually mm -hmm. very important. And I'm. You know, I, I genuinely want my writings to be books that that do help people to learn how to think critically, and you know that means they're going to think critically about the stuff I write. And, and I, I don't get everything right all the time. I, I, I've just written a, a paper that's going to be published in two parts in, in Theophilus, where I'm, I'm relooking at the issue of the dating of John's Gospel, and there's an argument. Uh, about the datings of, of John's Gospel that I used in some of my previous writings that I now don't think is a good argument. I've done more more research on it. I actually I had a, a conversation um, via Twitter with a with an atheist uh, that I know who pointed out a problem um, with an argument that that actually quite a few people 
years. I, you know, I've read in various scholars' years uh, an argument about John 5:2 um, to try and date the the um, at least the original writing of the the Gospel of John to before AD 70 when the Jews destroyed Rome in in the the Jewish War. Um, and I now I think that's not a good argument anymore. Um, and I'm publishing a paper to, to to point that out and say you know apologists and Christian scholars should stop stop using this argument because it's not a good one. Um, so we we have to kind of keep us ourselves under review and and help each other to you know to pursue truth. I mean it might be you know wouldn't it be great when, and lovely and convenient if we had a nice argument for the Gospel of John was from before AD seventy. But uh, I just don't think the evidence bears that out. I think probably it was it was published in about ninety six. Um, I still think it was written by John, and I think he was an eyewitness. <laughs> and we've, I think the other gospels were written earlier. I think indeed, I think there's a good argument that the Gospel of Mark might have been published as early as forty nine, A.D., which is like fifteen years after the crucifixion. Um, I think there's there's a good case for that, but for John, no, I think he, I think it's late. I think he wrote it towards the end of of, of a long of a long life, um, and so that's what we should say and, and give people our sources and, and and the arguments and so on. And yeah, mm. so it's just kind of p pursuing truth wherever it takes us. Yeah, and, and I, I I can mention some of some of Pete's other books on that. Uh, I wish I could believe in meaning, but on on the issue of of the possibility of meaning, which is very often denied by atheists, uh, existentialists, there is no meaning there. We just have to create it, right? And uh, uh, the skeptic's guide to atheism, which is a very interesting uh, title, right? A skeptic's guide to atheism. Think about the basis for atheism and so on. So, so there are lots of good books there, Pete, from you. Can, do you see that he has revised any of the, the his worst arguments from? God delusion. No, I think you, you'll find you'll find the same arguments that were in the God delusion reappearing in Outgrowing God. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And as I say, um, you know, the, the central argument of the God delusion, which is is basically the the kind of you know, if you say God designed the universe, then you have to answer the question who designed God because God would be just as complex as the universe and he'd need designing kind of that that's his sort of very basic outline of his argument um but that's an argument that you know atheist serious atheist philosophers of religion like eric weilenberg have heavily critiqued uh, and said you know this argument is fallacious it doesn't work um and dawkins is you know he re didn't revise that argument in the second edition of the god delusion and he uses the same argument in outgrowing god um, he, he he just doesn't respond to criticism or revise his arguments in light of criticism. He just sails on. Mm. Uh, yeah. One of the one of the books, in the, you know, we have lots of articles in the in, in the curriculum, so it's a it's a long list of material to keep in your mind. Um, but there's one of the books in the material by an English author, C.S. Lewis. Mere Christianity, right? One part of mere Christianity is on your curriculum, and that that is actually the moral argument, which is quite interesting because he, he used to be an atheist, and his uh, his way of presenting this argument 
has been very instrumental for many modern atheists in their way to the to the Christian faith, uh, because he he sees all the the objections and the the alternatives in uh, in setting it up. So so here we'll be back. Uh, just one question, Pete, before you start. Um, we're now talking about new atheists. You've been you've been also contributing to a book uh, on C.S. Lewis on the new atheists. Could, could you just briefly yeah. tell us what's what's the difference between the new atheists and and the kind of C.S. Lewis kind of atheists? Yeah, sure. This is a few years ago, I wrote a book called C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, and the, the the kind of link is that a lot of today's New Atheists did their doctoral studies at Oxford University, and their supervisors were people who were colleagues of C.S. Lewis back in the day, uh, mm -hmm. when Lewis was uh, at Oxford and undergoing his change from atheism to Christianity. And it's interesting to see that when Lewis was an atheist, a lot of his objections to belief in God and to Christianity and so on were very similar to the objections that today's new atheists have, except for the crucial difference that Lewis had been brought up in a tradition of atheism that respected philosophy, respected doing, doing metaphysics seriously. Uh, and this meant that Lewis never bought into the kind of um, scientism, the kind of we only know things through empirical scientific kind of evidence view that is very influential upon today's new atheists, um, but rather um, whilst you know respecting empirical evidence also respected metaphysical argumentation. Uh, and that kind of was a crucial difference that um, it was, you know, it was metaphysical arguments really that led Lewis out of atheism into theism. Generally, he became a theist first um, for a while b before he became a, a Christian theist. Uh, but that shift from atheism to theism was was primarily a kind of philosophical shift for him. Um, and one of the key philosophical shifts for him was o o over the the moral argument and and its relationship to the problem of evil, because you know Lewis, you know, he suffered through the trenches of World War One, right? He lost his mother to cancer uh, as a child. Um, this was a guy who who, uh, although he was a, you know an academic, he didn't just he hadn't lived a, a cloistered academic life. Um, he knew um, pain and suffering uh, in his life and he said as an atheist I, I used to think you know how, how could any God allow this, all this, this evil suffering to exist um, and then he realized that that meant that he thought there really was such a thing as evil um, but if he thought there was such a thing of, as evil well how do you know what's evil unless you have something that is a standard of goodness by which to judge it and where in your worldview do you kind of fit such a thing as a standard of goodness? Uh, and that that thought kind of led him down the road to the, grappling with the moral argument for God. So, you know, the moral argument can just as well start with um, X is an example of something evil as it can start with X as an example of something good. Um, it, it, it rests upon seeing that there is there is something to be discovered about 
good and evil, right and wrong, and then grappling with what kind of view of the world makes the most sense of thinking there is a real distinction between good and evil and right and wrong to be the sort of thing that you discover in reality rather than that you just make up. Because Lewis said, you know, if, if right and wrong is just something I make up, if all I'm really saying when I say, you know, God shouldn't allow this evil to take place is God does stuff that I happen not to like, but you might like it. Well, then I'm not really I'm not really have any solid ground for making an objection here. What I what I need to say is this is really evil and any God wor worth the name really shouldn't allow it because this is really wrong. But then he saw how that actually caused problems for for first of all for a, for a sort of naturalistic material worldview. Um, how do you fit in such a thing as right and wrong into a materialistic worldview? And if you do make room in your worldview for such a thing as right and wrong, good and evil, actually maybe that leads you down the path to to a, an argument for the existence of God. So that was kind of it was something that played a crucial role in. Lewis's own life experience and, and journey. Hmm. So, so we, we hope you enjoy Lewis's argument as well. So, so learn from him. But let me just repeat. Uh, you, you said the main, the main difference between the new atheists and the old kind of type. One of them is the new ones, they often subscribe to scientism, which says that science is the only way to truth. And science tells us every all the truth that we need. Yeah. And, and Lewis, he was philosophically deep thinker, and he knew, knew that was very superficial, right? Mm. Uh, that's not true. It's not. You can't. You can't argue from yep. for it, from science. It's kind of self-contradictory, actually. Yeah. As well, and 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 the old thinking atheists would would easily uh, detect that. So mm. scientism is one of the attitudes which very often is a characteristic of the new atheists. Mm. And the second one, which belongs to the same thing, is that they often look down on philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> they said, well, you know, philosophy hasn't given us any answers, now we have science, yeah. and we go to science to find the truth. And that is, that is kind of, he's actually been speaking quite negatively, disparagingly, on philosophers and philosophy. Yeah. And that's a pity, because He's actually a philosopher himself, but he's doing bad philosophy, right? That's right. This is back to what we said at the beginning about you can't avoid doing philosophy, really. Philosophy deals with um, the, the truth or otherwise of your, your basic assumptions about reality yeah. uh, and, and thinking wisely about them. So you, you, you can't avoid it. You can only do it badly or, or well to a greater or lesser extent. And by rejecting philosophy... Um, of course, you um, you end up doing it badly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there, there are many, many kind of deeper atheists who've been really, right. really frustrated with Dawkins. Yeah, this is why there are atheists like like the the, the character of Douglas in my Outgrowing yeah. God book, who's yeah. the kind of atheist who takes philosophy seriously and and is really annoyed at Dawkins for his superficial yeah. approach to uh, these kind of philosophical issues. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you find it represented in your book as well. Is the distinction yeah. between the new atheists and classical uh, classical atheists, I call them. The classical yeah. atheists, uh, the classicals were that were a lot deeper and respected philosophy. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so we're we're looking at, at, at Dawkins and the the moral argument, or what I technically call the meta 
ethical argument. Uh, Meta-ethics is that area of philosophy that deals with questions about the nature of good and evil, right and wrong. Um, and uh, this leads us into the topic of the, the moral argument for theism, really looking at how Dawkins approaches how you think about the relationship, if any, between good and evil uh, and God. Uh, this is what he calls um, he calls various arguments for God temptations to believe in God. Uh, he thinks they you know they have a, a superficial appeal, but they they don't really hold any substance. So he calls them temptations to believe. And he says there's also the moral version uh, of the the God temptation. Um, and here is a kind of standard kind of textbook way of laying out uh, a, a sort of mainstream presentation of how you might lay out uh, as an argument in, in premises and conclusion uh, a version of the moral argument where you have uh, two premises, two truth claims which if they're true uh, the conclusion follows from them and it's a logically valid argument in that sense the, the real question is are both of the premises true or at least more likely true than false so premise one is the claim that if objective moral values uh, were to exist, yeah, then God exists. And premise two is the claim that objective moral values do exist. Uh, and by objective here, we simply mean, you know, discovered rather than invented by us, things that don't depend upon you or me or us, what we think, what we happen to feel or, or, or decide. Um, but these are things that are, are true independently of us. So if objective moral values were to exist, then God exists, but objective moral values do exist, and it would follow from these two premises that therefore uh, God exists. Now you can find atheists who agree with both of those premises, although no particular atheist tends to agree with both of them. They tend to agree with either one premise or the other one. Because of course if you agree with both of the premises, and you see that that conclusion follows, it, it makes it pretty hard to be an atheist, right? But there are atheists who agree with premise one, there are atheists who agree with premise two. So here's an uh, atheist, Russ Schaefer-Landau, um, agreeing with the premise that there are objective moral values. Um, he argues that some moral views are true, others false. And he says, my thinking them doesn't make them so. So the truth or falsity of moral claims doesn't depend on me, he's saying they're objective. He says individuals and whole societies can be seriously mistaken when it comes to morality. The best explanation of this is that there are moral standards not of our making. So he's, he's arguing uh, that because we can be mistaken in our moral views, that shows that there are moral truths to get right or wrong. There is an objective moral realm. Or uh, atheist Peter Cave, who um, does work with the British Humanist Association, he says, uh, whatever sceptical arguments may be brought against our belief that, say, you know, killing the innocent is morally wrong. He says, we're more certain that the killing, killing the innocent, is morally wrong than that the argument against that view is sound. He says, torturing an innocent child for the sheer fun of it is morally wrong. Full stop. 
this is just so kind of obvious um, that it's kind of inconceivable that you could have a successful argument against that view he's saying because any argument against that view uh, would be less plausible than the obvious plausibility of the claim that torturing innocent children for fun is wrong right so there are atheists who argue for moral objectivity And when we try to kind of think about and analyse what we, what we mean when we're talking about an objective realm of moral facts, uh, an objective moral fact is, as it were, a sort of moral ideal, an ideal about how things should be. Uh, objective morality is something that, that prescribes or commands how we should behave, how we ought to behave. It's, it's not merely descriptive. Um, it doesn't just describe how we do behave, it prescribes how we ought to behave, even if we don't behave that way. Uh, and morality is something that, in our experience, obligates our behaviour. We, we, we feel ourselves obligated to behave in certain ways and not to behave in certain ways. So objective morality seems to be to do with an ideal that prescribes and obligates. But an ideal seems to carry with it the notion of some sort of intentionality. Um, a prescription or a command carries with it the, the idea of a prescriber or a commander. The notion of obligation really requires someone to whom one is obligated. You can't be obligated by a thing, by something impersonal or non-personal. You, you can only be obligated to something personal. But if we're talking about an objective moral fact to which we're obligated, but objective morality doesn't depend upon you or me or us. It, it can't be that I'm obligated to myself or I'm obligated to you or to society because then that obligation wouldn't be objective. It, it would be a subjective one that depended upon us as subjects. This is where the, the conundrum comes in of explaining, you know, how do you explain the existence of uh, objective moral facts? As the philosopher um, puts it in uh, this uh, quote, um, I think um, this is a quote from an anthology by Brian Davis, um, a chapter on why morality implies the existence of God. Um, you can put it like this, on the one hand, objective moral claims transcend or go beyond every human person doesn't depend upon us so it transcends every human person on the other hand it's contradictory to assert that impersonal non-personal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills our wills if we have allegiance to something it has to be something personal so this is a, a sort of paradox and the only solution to this paradox is to suppose that the, the, this order of objective moral claims that we meet in our experience is in fact rooted in the personality of, well, let's call it God, right? 
something that transcends us but to whom to whom we are rightly obligated so what does Dawkins make of the relationship between moral values and God and the, the idea that there might be some implication that if you believe in moral values you should believe in God uh, Dawkins puts it like this he says without God it is said where is the inducement to be good uh, what are the sanctions against bad behavior uh, Dawkins complains about basing quote moral decisions on on the fear that our every move is being watched so we we need to suck it up to an obsessively vigilant god inexhaustibly interested in what goes on in our beds okay this is his first line of uh, attack what are the inducements to be good not bad well it, it's this idea that we we're being watched by god a god who's interested in in what we do particularly in our beds uh, so how would we respond to or think about what Dawkins is saying here in response to the moral argument and I hand it back to Bjorn briefly for our, our to do some discussion on this recording stopped yeah <clears throat> So, uh, thank you for, for very good reflections there, and I love the way many of you are, are digging into what assumptions is Dawkins making here. Recording uh, in progress. In responding to this, I would particularly bear, bear in mind that the context of discussion about this, the God temptation for morality, and the, the kind of standard way of laying that out in the literature that I, that I reviewed uh, at the start here. Uh, and ask myself what part of that argument is Dawkins responding to here I, I, is he objecting to the logical form of the argument and saying that, that the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises is he objecting to the first premise is he objecting to the second premise um, well no he's not talking about that, that standard way of formulating the issue at all he's talking about a bunch of other maybe interesting issues but he's talking about a bunch of other issues um, as well as you know responding in, in the way that some of our conversation has to saying perhaps Dawkins is kind of misunderstanding the, the, the inner dynamics of Christian ethics misportraying God and so on I would simply say he is uh, arguing in, in what English language philosophy would call by producing a red herring uh, producing a, a diversion from the topic he's not really addressing the the, the argument um, English philosophers use this weird phrase about a red herring um, which I, I always need to explain to foreign audiences so I have this slide um, when uh, you're uh, back in the day hunting foxes with dogs and you may have people who want to stop people from hunting foxes with dogs uh, one way that they would do this would be to to drag some smelly fish some red herrings across the pathway in, in between the dog and the fox so that the, the 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 dogs would smell this new fresher scent and be diverted from following the fox and and would run after 
and lead everyone astray, lead, lead them off in the uh, irrelevant distraction of the, of the red herring. So it's become a phrase that's come to mean in English, um, going after an irrelevant distraction. And these things that Dawkins is saying is really in, in the context of, you know, what reasons, if any, does morality give you for believing in a god? In context of the mainstream philosophical discussion of that issue, the stuff that Dawkins is talking about is is a red herring. Um, he, he says things like this. He says, you know, how how do we uh, even know what is good and what bad? Um, the temptation again here is to to abdicate the responsibility to think about morality and instead take take the lazy route of slavishly following an ancient book of rules, rules invented by fallible men. So again, as soon as Dawkins comes to trying to, to kind of portray or describe the relationship between God and morality that people might think exists, you can see he's not really talking about the moral argument. Um, this is another red herring. Um, the moral argument isn't about explaining how we know what is good and bad. It's about explaining how, how come good and bad are objective realities that exist to be known or not however we know them but but here Dawkins is talking about the issue of how how people might think we know about right and wrong and he's and saying it's you just you know outsource our thinking to relying on some ancient book invented by fallible men well of course that comment in itself is kind of begging the question about about the bible and and where it comes from um but the, the main issue is this is not the topic. He's talking about knowing right and wrong and the moral argument is talking about the existence of right and wrong to be known. However you might come to know it through relying on the Bible or not, right? And interestingly, of course, you could point out that according to the Bible itself, you don't need the Bible in order to know right from wrong. Um, Paul talks about gen Gentiles having consciences um, even though they don't have the law, uh, and so on. Dawkins says, as, as for the suggestion that we can't define good and bad without God, this feels like it might be slightly more on target, maybe. He says it's, it's falsified by the honourable and sophisticated discipline of moral philosophy. Well, hang on a minute, the, the moral argument is a major part of the historical discussion within moral philosophy within meta-ethics uh, at least um, this is kind of another red herring uh, he goes on to talk about you know philosophies of of how we make moral decisions how we know right from wrong and so on but that's not the topic when the topic is the not the uh, the issue of how we know but what the issue of what is known, the existence of the thing to be known. Um, technically speaking, uh, the ontology of what exists rather than the epistemology of how we know. So the meta-ethical argument is about explaining the existence of objective value. It's, it's not about uh, how we know it or how we um, define it. Um, We cycle back to the, an issue that uh, was raised in our discussion, which I said was an excellent issue to have put well, our finger on, 
is that when it really comes down to it, Dawkins denies premise two of the moral argument. So although it, it, it sounds like, you know, it sounded like he was saying, um, you know, motivating how you behave through fear is a bad thing. And, you know, Christianity is wrong for doing that or God is wrong for doing that. Uh, so it sounded like he was endorsing the idea that there is such a thing as right and wrong. Uh, saying Christianity or belief in God gets that wrong in, in a moral sense. Actually, elsewhere in his writings, in multiple places in his writings, Dawkins explicitly rejects the idea that there is an objective moral realm. Um, here, for example, uh, he says there is a, a non-overlapping, exhaustive distinction between ideas that are false or true about the real world, factual matters in the broad sense, and ideas about what we ought to do normative or moral ideas for which the words true and false have no meaning he, he he actually thinks that talking about moral ideas or normative ideas is literally meaningless uh, this is back to a, a sort of a verificationist philosophy of the the early to mid 20th century which is long died out within mainstream philosophy um, but if you track back to, you know, Dawkins was probably doing kind of work at university and doctoral studies under people who were colleagues of C.S. Lewis's back in the Oxford University of the 1920s and 30s and 40s, 50s. Um, you can see that that sort of um, philosophy from back in the day, which has since been rejected within mainstream philosophy, um, the idea that um, talking about moral values and so on is, is literally meaningless um, and they would link it, it back in the day it would, this would be linked to the idea that you can only know things through science right or things are only meaningful if you can um, sort of scientifically define or access them this was the idea behind the verificationist philosophy and here Dawkins is, is buying wholesale into this idea that well you know ethical ideas normative ideas are, are just meaningless and this would would kind of link into his his scientism so yeah actually he, he rejects premise two of course this, this is a huge problem in terms of the fact that as a neo-atheist one of his you know main motivations for attacking religion is is moral and I would absolutely want to allow that he makes some, some good points about the evils that religious people do, including Christians. Do, um, do evil things. And the church has done some evil things in its history. Um, but you can only say that co coherently, consistently, if you also admit that there is such a thing as evil. right? You can't, on the one hand, say moral normative ideas aren't true or false they're meaningless and at the same time say the church has done evil things because what you're saying is the church has done blah 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 things <laughs> okay uh, if it's literally meaningless 
you've not really said anything have you so really he takes a, a route of um, uh, J.L. Mackey was a, a, a classical atheist from Oxford uh, in his book The Miracle of Theism he considers this relationship between you know the moral argument for, for God and so on and he actually says you know uh, uh, the idea of objective values makes the existence of a god more probable than it would have been without them at least he, he at least thought that if you admit there are objective values that is at least some evidence for the existence of god he thought that he said thus we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of god but of course Mackey is an atheist so what does what does he do about this he says if we adopt instead a subjectivist account of morality if we say that there isn't any objective morality this problem for atheism would not arise and and Mackey like Dawkins was a moral subjectivist uh, he, he famously wrote a book called ethics inventing right and wrong inventing right and wrong um, so he took that that same route and Dawkins is, is, is basically doing the same thing here but he's not self-consciously doing it <laughs> in one place he really does seem to be you know weighing against arguing against the, the evils of religion and so on and, and motivated by this sort of moral crusade um, but on the other hand in other places in other contexts object uh, explicitly rejects the the notion of objective moral values so I would ask Dawkins and, and folks like Mackey you know he said this problem for atheism wouldn't arise if you if you get rid of the, the notion of objective values you know which is the which is really the bigger problem you know having to believe that some sort of God exists or having to believe that moral subjectivism is true that that literally we can't make any true moral statements which is really the bigger problem um, seems obvious to me which is the bigger bigger problem um, but I would I would leave that question to sit with people there we go recording stopped So you, 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 in the group discussion, you, you put your fingers on a lot of those issues that I unearthed. The issue about what you know, what does he really mean about morality? Seems like he's believing in morality, but does he really? Well, actually, no. Explicitly, he doesn't. But maybe, maybe he's just inconsistent. People aren't always con consistent in their views. Mm -hmm. um, but also, issues about you know, does he misportray the dynamics of 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 Christian ethics um, uh, and so on but also you know is is he on topic if the topic is what is the relationship between belief in morality and belief in God if any the central mainstream discussion of this is is the moral argument and in, and in that context the things that Dawkins talks about are kind of interesting diversions he, mm. he, he never really gets at the, the, the main issue doesn't address the key argument in that area doesn't let you as the reader of, you know know about that argument he kind of says well these are the kind of reasons that I can think of that people might make this tie between morality and God 
it's as if he's he's never bothered to go and you know go down to his university library and pick up a introduction to philosophy of religion textbook that the undergrad students would have read mm-hmm. and would know more about the the area than he does uh, it's kind of it's kind of astonishing but this is kind of you know that would be paying serious attention to philosophy and you know we we don't really understand the world through philosophy do we we understand it through science so you know what is there to understand right that's the kind of <laughs> the attitude um that um sinks uh, a lot of this new atheist thinking in, in in this area and makes it so shallow in comparison to the classical atheists like like Mackey for example who is at least squarely facing the issue and saying yeah if there's objective morality that seems to be a pretty decent to believe reason to believe in God but I don't believe in God how do I do that consistently I've got to be a moral subjectivist now if you're willing to pay that price tag you know best of luck to you but at least he's trying to be consistent um and dawkins i think doesn't even see the issue mm. and, and yeah mm. okay right good question to, to dig into that there are there are different types of moral subjectivism right mm. what what unifies them is you're rejecting the idea that morality is objective but there are different ways of doing that. Um, I mean, one way of rejecting the idea that there are objective values that we can get right or wrong in our moral thinking is to say with, with Dawkins that talk about moral values and norms and so on is meaningless. That, that's one day to do it. And another way would be to say, well, it's meaningful, but it's just untrue. There, there are no moral truths. So moral statements are not meaningless, but they're false, right? Um, and if they're if they're false, then there's no objective tr- facts to get right or, or wrong. All, you know, if you take them as object claims about objective reality, they're all false. They must be just a, claims about subjective reality. That could be because it's just they're just a claim about my personal preference. Or it could be at a level of, of a, a culture or a society. You could have, you know, some cultures think that um, cannibalism is fine. Um, other cultures think that cannibalism is really bad. Um, it's not that one culture is right and the other culture is wrong, whichever one that might be. It's just they have different opinions. But there's no fact of the matter to get right. But morality is kind of relative to your culture um, but it's something that your culture makes up or decides and there's there's still no fact of the matter so it's still subjective but it's a sort of intersubjective level rather than individual um, yeah so there, there are different ways of rejecting the idea that there are you know moral norms to be discovered moral truths um, but either there are moral truths or there aren't <laughs> and as, as Pete pointed out, one of the reasons why atheists are tempted to deny objectivity is that it, it, it seems to be a good argument for God's existence. Yeah. And that's why they, some of them, as you, one of them you mentioned, prefer su- subjectivism. Um, but then the point is, is 
when you challenge them here, they got real problems, both with, with critiquing Christianity, of course, but with, with basing um, uh, ethics at all, yeah. right? So I think that's, um, mm. uh, it's not just we who need to defend objectivity, but we need to challenge their mm. subjective view of morality with Holocaust, with IS, with child prostitution, with torture, with, uh, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so, uh, so if if it's subjective, they can't be wrong. Objectively, it's just you who might feel it, and then your your uh, objections to these practices yeah. don't have any weight apart from your own feelings. This is this is why I I'm personally convinced that the more consistently you try and think through and live out a, an an atheistic worldview, that the, the the more you're pushed into into accepting nihilism, basically, yeah, um, and and you'll see this tension played out in the in the book and particularly in the chapter on the moral argument where, you know, Thomas really wants to say, you know, God in the Bible and Christians do things that are wrong that they shouldn't do, and this is a really good reason not to believe in Yahweh and not to not to accept Christianity. Um, and yet realizes that if he if he wants to say that that does look like he ought to at least admit that there's some kind of good god and douglas is saying to him no no look there just there isn't any right and wrong hmm. well of course i can't critique anybody for anything including christians i can't point at a story about yahweh in the bible and say oh he shouldn't behave like that as that's that's an evil character or that but but I can, you know, I can avoid the moral argument by saying that there is no right or wrong. I, I'm consistent. Mm -hmm. And then the point that, that Astrid makes is, why do you care about being consistent? Why do you think that's a... Do you think it's a good thing to be consistent? Do you care about your integrity as a, as a thinker? Aren't you aren't you actually committed to the value of having integrity and thinking well and being consistent and aren't, don't you really believe in some objective moral values here, Douglas? <laughs> um, so although Douglas is kind of being consistent in one way by saying, yeah, I, I can I can avoid the moral argument if I reject the premise that there are objective moral values. But you know, can you actually consistently live as a moral nihilist? Um, is okay. is it really possible to do? Mm. <laughs> I think I think this is a really important thing we need to explore, and what I think uh, kind of strategically, we should we should work along that uh, that line of subjectivity or nihilism uh, before we argue for ob I mean, the objective side. We should help them to see the weakness of the nihilistic yeah. or subjectivist version. Yeah. And, and, uh, and here, quoting atheists can help you. You can say, I, yeah. you know, atheists yeah. like, like Nietzsche, like Mackey, like Sartre, the French existentialist, Camus, and so on. Um, these are, I think, the, the atheists who, who's, who see, see the issue and, and try and avoid God by avoiding morality. Yeah. 
or or think that they're reject see that their rejection of God implies a rejection of morality and they they try and live with it and and squarely face the problem mm. um in in contrast to to the the new atheists who are kind of all over the all over the place on it trying to do you have the phrase trying to have your cake and eat it um mm. you can't have your cake and eat it you can't have it both ways mm. you can criticize mm. you know the evils of religion or or, or <laughs> or you can uh, avoid the moral argument but you can't do both right so this is the this is the other premise of the moral argument um and in our chat today i i gave three reasons for thinking that there would be a link uh from the existence of objective values to the existence of a good god um arguments such as um you can only be obligated to something personal but if there there are these transcendent obligations um the existence of which don't don't depend upon finite people um what does that leave you with uh, it leaves you with an infinite person um if a moral morals are things that prescribe they don't just describe they prescribe your behavior um that seems to directly imply a prescriber uh, who, who is it that's prescribing these these values but they are also objective they're they're it's not just like i can prescribe that you know murder is fine um you know legally we can we can be like the, that film series the purge and, and say you know we have a day day year when you know it's legal to do anything you like it, it wouldn't make it right to do anything you like on that day um if there are objective values so but values are things that prescribe that command behavior but in a, in a moral sense not not just a merely a sort of social legal sense um so again you know if we have these prescriptions that transcend individuals and society societies of finite individuals where where do you where do you place them in reality as it were um so there are a number of, of sort of lines of argumentation um, that combine, I think, to give a, a strong case for thinking that if there are such a thing as objective moral values, that, that points quite heavily in the direction of, of something that transcends us, that is personal, is good, uh, that, that has the right to obligate our behaviour, command our behaviour, that contains these sort of moral ideals or, or, or standards uh, um, by which we judge things to be right or wrong and and that's starting to sound an awful lot like a big chunk of what people mean by God yeah so so uh, Pete has shown us how how to shape this argument in a in a very formal way right to see them as premises and a conclusion that's very helpful to, to make it clear right and we can, can discuss each of the premises and the logic of it individually right yeah. uh, um, and, and another way another way of, of approaching it is also of course through world use okay which universe makes more sense mm. of morality that's one of the arguments one of the atheists said it it makes a lot more sense in the universe where god exists right and the challenge is if there is if the universe doesn't have god in it how what is morality and how can we base it right so so challenging naturalism which, which is 
normally the alternative in the academic discussion here. Mm. So it's not, it's not just not faith, but it's naturalism as a view of the universe. And how can that base morality or make sense of morality? I think that's one of the, the ways of approaching it. And we have the world user approach in many, uh, many areas and also, also in this area. And any other comments before we uh, close this teaching session? Thank you very much, Pete, for your, your teaching. Helpful. Um, and it's really important to be challenged by Richard Dawkins. I, I think that one of the one of the elements that kind of stuck with me at this time, you've presented this many times, Pete, but but the the importance of, of the red herring, distractions, do not be as a, the, the issue of whether the Bible or the Ten Commandments are good commandments is not relevant to the discussion of, of God and morality, right? So, so it's, it's uh, the attack on the Bible mm. or God or caricatures is not relevant to the moral argument, actually. Yeah. So, so be, uh, be very aware in your mind of what is really tackling the question of the basis of morality and what are just diversions, right? Whether the Bible is a good book is, is completely irrelevant to the argument of, 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 uh, of the moral argument for God's existence. God doesn't have to have made the book at all. Yeah. We don't know, know to have known who God is to make sense of the moral arguments, right? So, so it's not based on revelation. So don't be distracted by many other issues. They can be important to discuss, but they they don't have any weight in terms of the argument. The argument stands there independent mm. of all of these other issues that, that Dawkins is bringing up all the time, filling our minds with caricatures of God and caricatures of, of Christian ethics uh, and so on, and of religion. Um, and it's not relevant to the moral arguments mm. about morality objectivity and the existence of God. I think that's really important. What's, uh, is this relevant to the argument? Mm. Okay. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, uh, everyone. Thank you for your engagement. It was a great session. And, and uh, uh, we, I think we will have you back for another session uh, at some point, speaking Please about do, uh, uh, apologetics in 3D. Oh yes, marvelous. Thinking about apologetics, where we will link philosophy and apologetics uh, in a very helpful way. So we'll get back to you on that. Okay. Grand. Thank you, everyone. We can you eventuelt bring a little bit again with others, or på a Christine in the hostel in the classroom, or?